Legal Faceoff on WGNRadio.com is brought to you by McCorkle Litigation Services, leaders in court reporting and legal technology. Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man, Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Faceoff on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of the Legal Face Off podcast on WGN. I am one of your co hosts, Rich Lenkov. Our other co host, Tina Martini, is here. Tina, hello. Hello, Rich. How you doing? Good. Our moderator, Joe Brand, is busy on assignment with his other life as a Blackhawks broadcaster. So we are handling this ourselves today. We'll see how that goes. But uh, we've got a great slate. Uh, lots of breaking news. We'll get right to it with our first guest today, Tina. Yeah. So first up here, we've got um, a conversation about the latest in the wake of the Supreme Court's decision, Rich, on affirmative action from last month. And we're going to be speaking with the University of New Mexico Professor of Law and Leon Leon Karolitz Chair in Evidence and Procedure, Vinay Harpalani. Professor, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So, Professor, last month, the Supreme Court effectively ended race-conscious admissions programs at colleges and universities by invalidating admissions programs at Harvard and UNC, with the majority holding that colorblind criteria must now be used in the admissions process. Since then, there's been a lot of activity over the last few weeks, including lawmakers in Florida and Texas passing legislation to defund DEI offices at public universities and with similar bills in the works in a few other states. Tell us more about this decision and these current developments. Yeah, so the decision, the Supreme Court's decision, as you said, basically uh, addressed the use of race as an admissions factor and basically said you can't use race itself as an admissions factor. Uh, you know, they didn't over actually explicitly overturn the precedent of Grutter v. Bollinger, which is the case 20 years ago that had said you can use race. So this was a little different from last term. You may remember they overturned Roe v. Wade. They said they did. Here, they kind of skirted around it, kind of said, you know, diversity may be okay. They didn't say diversity, you know, was not important. Uh, But they just said the way that Harvard and University of North Carolina were using race, uh, they didn't have concrete diversity goals. Uh, You know, the way they were using race uh, was not really accessible. They wanted an endpoint for using race. You know, you can't keep using race as a factor forever. Uh, And you haven't told us when that endpoint is going to be. So they left it a little fuzzy. In theory, there could be a way to do it, to to use race. But in practice, they basically closed the door. Uh, But they did say, you know, uh, students can write about their experiences with racial discrimination. uh, And, uh, uh, you know, uh, universities can use other ways to get diversity. So it was a pretty narrow ruling. Now, the uh, anti-DEI legislation, that even predates the ruling in Florida, Texas, and particularly Florida, has been a lot of publicity. This type of legislation has been going on for a while. So, uh, you know, I think the Supreme Court's decision just kind of reinforces the political movement around that, although the Supreme Court's decision was about admissions. It wasn't about DEI offices. It wasn't about other diversity efforts. But that has 
been going on even before the court's decision when uh, the, the attacks on so what's called quote unquote critical race theory. And that's, you know, the way that term is used is really uh, misleading. Uh, that's been going on for a couple of years already. Um, and that addresses other things on campus like uh, programs to uh, support diversity, academic requirements. Uh, so a lot of other things covered there that I think, you know, this is all part of one uh, one kind of broad political movement uh, to push diversity in the background. So speaking of that political movement, earlier this month, 13 Republican senators wrote a letter, Professor, to leaders of Fortune 500 companies warning them that using race as a factor in hiring and promotion decisions might violate this ruling. Uh, Senator Tom Cotton a few days ago said that uh, he wrote a letter to 51 global and national law firms warning them that their use of uh, DEI programs um, and advice to clients may violate federal law, land them in court. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that is, a, you know, it's a scare tactic, uh, kind of a, a political ploy. The, the Supreme Court's decision was very much focused on university admissions. And even there, as I said, you know, they kind of danced around the precedent. Uh, you know, they uh, were pretty narrow in their ruling. Uh, so this is a way to kind of uh, get uh, uh, corporations, these Fortune uh, 100 companies, to voluntarily, on their own accord, try to uh, stop using diversity initiatives, stop using other things that may be related to try to get uh try to get racial diversity, uh, because as I said, this is kind of uh, part of a broader political movement. So I view it primarily as a scare tactic, you know, affirmative action employment in different ways has been allowed, is still allowed under the precedent. But I will say with the caveat, if there was a case, you know, a Title VII employment discrimination case, something like that, that went before the Supreme Court, we've seen how conservative the court is. We saw, you know, what they did, uh, what they've done with precedent so far, you know, what they did with uh, the affirmative action precedent, what they did with Roe v. Wade. So I would not be confident uh, in diversity initiatives if a case actually went before the Supreme Court. But as of now, this is a scare tactic. You know, uh, corporations, companies can still use diversity efforts. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, the, those were not addressed by the Supreme Court's recent decision. So, Professor, the Department of Education is hosting the National Summit on Equal Opportunity in Higher Education. Tell us more about the summit and what other similar efforts there may be underway, particularly at the federal level in the wake of this decision. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I was just on a panel uh, this morning about the cases and about that summit. The summit came up and a lot of us, you know, professors who work in this area were wondering what exactly is going to be at this summit and no one really knew. Uh, but, uh, you know, I've seen the agenda. It's going to be about uh, creating opportunities uh, just to uh, preserve diversity at colleges and universities. So what do we need to do to, to create opportunities? How the college admissions process needs to be adjusted. You know, the court said you can't use race, but can you use some combination of socioeconomic status, uh, other measures of disadvantage, geographic criteria, what school districts uh, students went to, uh, financial parents, financial background, other hardships that students have encountered, all of those things, you know, can can those be proxies for race? I'm sure that will be discussed. There's going to be a discussion of pipelines, you know, recruitment efforts to increase diversity. So, you know, getting more racial diversity is not just about using race in admissions. It's making sure that people can apply, that they know what they need to, to apply, that they have the academic credentials to apply. 
And I think the the, uh, the uh, summit is going to address all of those issues uh, in terms of just what do we do now to continue to have racial diversity. And I think it parallels conversations that are being had at universities across the country. Probably pretty much every university is trying to figure out what to do with this uh, decision and addressing all of those issues. It's going to vary depending on university, different uh, geographic regions, you know, have draw from different pools, uh, more selective universities draw from a different pool of students than less selective universities. So the solutions are going to be very individually tailored, right? They're, they're going to depend on the institution. But these are conversations that are being had all across the country already. Professor, what's your take on the uh, lawsuit that was filed a couple of weeks ago in the wake of this decision uh, by a civil rights organization alleging that legacy admissions, the practice of allowing um, students whose families went to the university, which, by the way, overwhelmingly favors white people, uh, mm-hmm. violate federal law. Yeah, I think, you know, the issue of legacy admissions has been in the backdrop of the discussion of affirmative action race conscious admissions for a number of years, because, as you said, legacy admissions tend to favor white students. I think, you know, the lawsuit itself puts more political pressure on universities to reconsider legacy admissions, as a number of them have already. I believe Amherst has eliminated uh, legacy admissions. So, I, you know, filing a lawsuit can sometimes also be kind of a, a political tactic. As far as the outcome of the case, I mean, legacy admissions are not race-based directly. You know, we know that they benefit white students more, but there are black alumni, there are Latino uh, Latina alumni, Asian American alumni of Harvard and, and of other universities. So legally, that puts them in a different category. And I would not be confident about a legal challenge. Uh, I don't think the court is going to say universities can't use legacy admissions. They have their own reasons. Uh, universities have their own reasons for doing so. You know, they like to build their alumni network. And it's not really about race. It's correlated, as you said, uh, benefits white people more, but eventually they're going to be more alumni of color. And, and you know, uh, so it's not directly racial. That's what a court would say. But this is part of the political movement also. You know, litigation lawsuits are part of political movement to try to get universities to voluntarily end legacy admissions uh, because those do um, uh, overwhelmingly benefit white students. So, Professor, what advice do you have for students who are knee deep in applying to colleges and universities in the wake of this decision? So I would say do not be discouraged. You know, uh, students of color uh, hear about this decision uh, and hear all of the negative impact and how all these other lawsuits or or, or, uh, political uh, initiatives are being filed to stop uh, corporations and other entities from using diversity. But don't be discouraged. Uh, The Supreme Court Chief Justice Roberts opinion said that you can talk about your experiences with racial discrimination in essays uh, and universities can uh, can consider that. So I would say, you know, I would say don't do that much different. You know, do what you would have done even before the decision. Uh, you know, make your best effort to apply. First of all, definitely apply. Don't be discouraged from applying. Uh, but uh, talk about your experiences and, you know, do as well as you can. I think the academic criteria probably become a, a bit more important uh, when you can't Uh, use these types of diversity initiatives. So do as well as you can in school, Uh, make sure and highlight that on your application. Um, And just number one message is don't be discouraged. Keep trying. And, uh, you know, um, universities want diversity. Uh, They want racial diversity and they will find ways, uh, you know, they will make the attempt to find ways to get it. And that was Vinay Harpalani, University of New Mexico Professor of Law and Leon Leon Karolitz Chair in Evidence and Procedure. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor. Thank you, Tina.
Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Downey & Lenkoff, a firm with offices in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like McDonald's, Target, Macy's, Wendy's, and the Chicago Bears for his zealous advocacy and outstanding litigation results. Rich's many accolades include being named as an Illinois super lawyer from 2015 to present and leading lawyer from 2012 to present. These are designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, serving on the Legal Prep Charter Academy Advisory Board and the Northern Illinois University College of Law Board of Visitors. Rich is also a producer with credits including 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and Mike Ditka. Renegades, a Caesars Palace production starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon, Rock of Ages, and Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel in Concert. In addition to hosting WGN's Legal Faceoff since 2014, Rich serves as a legal analyst for a variety of media outlets. Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Downey and & Lenkoff, please visit dl-firm.com. Welcome back to Legal Faceoff. Another story we're covering today, Tina, is... Uh continuing to break news here in Chicago. And in particular, where you are in Evanston, your backyard, literally, this is the Northwestern hazing scandal. We've learned uh, that some additional alleged victims are planning on filing a lawsuit. Some have hired uh, past legal face-off guest Ben Crump to represent them. And we're very privileged today to have Michael Levine from Stuart Tigman uh, from Miami to discuss this case. And Stuart, uh, Sorry, Michael, you have a particular uh, experience with this issue as you have represented victims of hazing before. Welcome to the show. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So what's your take generally on how uh, Northwestern has handled this entire scandal from the beginning? We know that uh, their early approach was to suspend now terminated Pat Fitzgerald, who is the football coach for a couple of weeks. Uh, that certainly didn't go over well because no. just a few days later they uh, announced that they were firing him. There's also been their men's baseball coach fired uh, in a somewhat separate but related scandal. So, what's your take on how the universities handle this whole affair? Uh, horrifically, uh, things are going from bad to worse for Northwestern. I just saw over the weekend there's a women's volleyball player that filed a lawsuit as well. Um, so now you've got an issue that is engulfing the entire program. Like you pointed out, the initial punishment for the football team was a, a two-week midsummer suspension. I think that's really just a vacation. And uh, you got to think people at Northwestern are wondering if they had come out from the jump and just fired the coach, would they be in this situation? So, Michael, we heard from some of the alleged victims last week. Former quarterback Lloyd Yates discussed the code of silence. Why don't more players speak out about hazing? Yeah. So, you know, look, this is something that uh, we've seen in the in the fraternity hazing cases that I've handled as well. And it's amplified in the athletic setting because these players want to play. I mean, some of the players are on scholarship. This is their ticket to getting their education. Other players may have professional aspirations. Other players just want to play. Um, I spoke with the family of one of the current players and they don't want to come forward because kid just wants to play football. Um, and, and that's really why you're, you're going to see, I've seen some former players step forward. I think we've yet to see a current player step into that limelight and, you know, for all the reasons we know. Michael, let's talk about, uh, 
Mr. Yates a little further. He said that these activities, the alleged activities involving hazing, many of which allegedly involve sexual um, acts, uh, they occurred, according to Yates and others, so close in proximity to the coaching staff that there's no way that they would not be aware of it. Uh, on the other hand, Pat Fitzgerald has hired one of the most prominent lawyers, certainly in Chicago, if not the country, and has already denied knowing about this. Uh, what do you think a jury would make of uh, the former coach's denials? I think it's unlikely. Um, a big football program, Northwestern's about to put $800 million into rebuilding the football field. These football uh, coaches and staff, they know when a, when a player skips a class. They know when a player skips a workout. I don't think that anything went on in that locker room that the coaches didn't know about. But, you know, significantly to a civil case, nobody's going to have to prove that the coach knew. They're going to have to prove that the coach should have known. And Northwestern seems to have already admitted that in their page and a half executive summary. Now, you mentioned that summary. You mentioned what Northwestern's initial reactions should have been when this case, if it gets to trial, um, how deep do you think exposure is for the for the university? I mean, certainly they would hope that it would end with the sacrifices they've made with Fitzgerald and the baseball coach. But from your perspective, having represented victims like this, what would your argument be to the jury to maximize the recovery of these alleged victims? Again, Northwestern, deep, you know, deep pockets, large university, lots of alums. Uh, there's certainly some vast exposure for them. Yeah. So, you know, the exposure is a bit of a question mark other than to say that it's huge. Um, we haven't heard a ton about the damages of the individual victims. So we don't really know what we're dealing with um, from what the from Northwestern's report, from what we've been told. Nobody was injured. Um, obviously, thankfully, nobody died. Um, you may have PTSD claims, depression, things like that, the, the mental anguish behind that. And we shouldn't understate what those claims may be. But frankly, I think this is a case where not so much the damages are going to drive the case and, and I think ultimately drive a settlement from Northwestern. I think it's going to be the liability portion. You know, you've got Northwestern coming out and admitting that they should have known what was going on. You have an athletic department in disarray. This has now reached three of the teams. Who knows if there's more? And this is not some unknown random university in, in the corner of whatever. This is one of the elite universities in the country. And, and I had someone come up to me the other day who's a Northwestern MBA grad telling me, oh, yeah, they sent out an email to all of us about what was going on. That's not something that Northwestern wants to be bothering doing. They want to be promoting themselves as one of the top universities in the country, not someone with a hazing problem. So I think that ultimately... There's going to be huge exposure because there appears to be so many victims. But as far as what is that number, it's a little unknown until we learn more about, you know, the damages. But I think Northwestern is going to be looking for the exit sign as quickly as possible. So, Michael, what should coaches and schools do when they have any notice of hazing? Yeah, I mean, that's there should be a robust response to, to root that out immediately. I mean, ultimately, let's look at what this was. These are kids. They're 18-year-old, 19-year-old, maybe the oldest kid on that team is 22 years old. These are kids that are running amok in a locker room. And the fact of the matter is this appears to have gone on for at least you know, a decade, maybe longer. And so once a school, a coaching staff doesn't do anything about it, you're sending the message that this is a free pass. You can do whatever you want in here. 
Nobody's going to, you know, come down on you. There's no penalties. There's no, there's no risk to you for acting this way. So it's going to keep going on. And you're just ingraining it in the culture of the next class and the next class and the next class. So I think really a zero tolerance policy. You know, if if coaches had intervened early on and you you saw players missing games, this would be over. No, no kid in that locker room is going to risk playing over these absurd, you know, acts of hazing. Like the last question here on legal faceoff, you helped draft a bill that ended up strengthening Florida's anti-hazing law. Talk to us about why hazing still goes on, in your opinion, both at the university level, uh, university level uh, itself, and also college athletics. You know, it seems like in this day of age, this day and age, knowing what we know, um, and with the ability of victims to come forward and have their voice, it would seem unusual that this would still be going on, but apparently it's still very prevalent. What about the culture of universities? And college sports in particular makes this a breeding ground for this type of activity. That's a great question. I mean, every year you you hear about a tragedy. It seems like there isn't a fall or spring semester that goes by where somebody, some college student isn't getting hurt, killed, something as a result of hazing. Um, I don't have a good answer as to why it hasn't stopped. Hazing's been around for over 100 years. But I do know that, like you mentioned before, this culture of silence there's a desire for these people to want to belong. These are young people, like I mentioned. They want to fit in. They don't want to make waves. And when you look specifically at athletics, I mean, how can one who's in that locker room come forward and complain about what is going on, no matter how wrong it is, and then expect to be accepted by his teammates and you know, not expect to be retaliated against either by the coaching or the other players? And that's why in the athletic context, unless the coaching staff and the athletic department is coming down hard on this and letting it be known that we have no tolerance for this kind of behavior in our locker room, then it's just going to keep happening. He's won Best Lawyers Award in Florida. He is with Stuart Tillman. The website is stfblaw.com. Michael Levine, thank you so much for joining us on Legal Faceoff. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Up here next on Legal Faceoff to talk about the state of violence in Chicago is David Olson, professor of criminal justice and criminology and co-director of the Center for Criminal Justice at Loyola University, Chicago. Professor, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, Professor, in a recent op-ed in the Chicago Tribune, you and Professor Don Steeman, also of Loyola University, take a close look at gun violence in Chicago. What were your findings regarding the state of crime in Chicago generally and gun violence specifically? Yeah, what what we were trying to do is provide some perspective um, about the extent and nature of crime in Chicago. Um, what most people hear about are the most serious crimes, uh, homicide, shootings, and and rightly so. Those are the most serious crimes that occur. Um, but most crimes that occur don't involve violence and don't involve firearms. So what we wanted to look at was uh, how has overall crime uh, changed over the last 20 years or so in Chicago? Um, and what we found was that overall crime has been decreasing fairly consistently, uh, down around 50 percent from 2001 to to 2022. 
Uh, and in fact, violent crime that doesn't involve a firearm has also been decreasing. Uh, the one exception to that, is, as you point out, is firearm violence uh, has increased. And primarily, it's increased in the last few years. Professor, your excellent op-ed mentions that various types of violent crimes tend to trend up or down together, but that firearm violence in Chicago has bucked this trend and has actually increased at a more significant rate than other types of violent crime. Why do you think this is the case? Yeah, I, I think it's a, a it's a it's a good question, but one that has probably a very complicated answer. I think the thing that we were most struck by is when you look at long-term trends in crime, be it homicide, robbery, burglary, motor vehicle theft, they all tend to follow the same patterns, the same periods of ups and downs. Uh, what we've seen in the last few years is a change to that, where uh, most crimes are continuing their downward trend, uh, but firearm violence is is bucking that trend. And, and it could be a few things. One is that the pandemic was uh, inconsistent with what we've seen in history, right? We, we've never gone through and experienced uh, a pandemic and the economic challenges that it created. Uh, at the exact same time, or, or within the last four to five years, we've also seen an unprecedented increase in the number of handguns being purchased uh, by people in both Illinois and the United States. Uh, and it's likely some of those firearms are ending up in the hands of, of young people that, while prohibited from owning firearms, uh, feel the need to carry guns. And I think it's it's, I don't want to say a perfect recipe, but it's the convergence of a lot of forces that uh, likely explain why uh, more young people may be carrying firearms uh, and using those in situations that are impulsive and they're, and they're not necessarily thinking through the consequences. So, Professor, you also mention and discuss other types of crimes, including crimes against property and carjackings. We've obviously heard more about carjackings in the last couple of years. What were your findings with respect to those types of crimes? I think it's, again, once you start disaggregating crime, crime you can find different patterns and different trends. I think the, there's, there's been a fairly large increase in recent years in the number of cars being stolen. Um, Carjacking is essentially a form of robbery. When we look at it and when people classify criminal behavior, um, that's a robbery offense. That's a violent crime. Um, most robberies do not involve carjacking. Uh, and most motor vehicle thefts, situations where someone's car is stolen, don't involve carjacking. So again, carjackings have increased, um, but they account for a relatively small share of all cars being stolen. Um, I think last year there were somewhere around 1,400 uh, carjackings. Uh, there are around 20,000 motor vehicle thefts that did not involve the victim being confronted and having their car taken. Um, so, again, it, it should obviously be of, of concern. It's a form of violence. Uh, but in the, in the larger context of crime, it's relatively rare. Professor, we've got a relatively new mayor in Chicago, a couple months into the job, Brandon Johnson. Uh, we will soon have a new Chicago Police Department superintendent as well. What can they, what can other leaders in this community do to curb the trend of gun violence? Um, I think there's a few things. There, there's short-term goals. There's also long-term goals. I think the, the mayor's articulated that things can't be solved overnight. And I think that's a good uh, thing to keep in mind. That, uh, as I point out, over the last 20 years, we've seen a 50% decrease in, in crime. Uh, it didn't happen overnight. It happened as a result of a lot of changes and improvements in 
in the way that we respond to criminal behavior. I think the things that uh, are most important is to recognize that the police alone cannot solve um, all the crime problems in the in the city, including gun violence. Uh, that said, there's clearly a need for improving the extent to which violent crimes that do occur get solved, uh, that individuals who commit violence are identified and held accountable. And I think that would go a long way, not only to um, obviously hold individuals accountable, but hopefully reduce the need among people to either retaliate against those who may have uh, committed crime against their, their friends or family members, or to carry firearms for fear of victimization. Uh, carrying guns for self-protection is oftentimes a reason why people carry guns, whether they do it legally or not. Uh, it's that under, underlying fear of victimization. And I think if uh, the police can improve the clearance rates and identify people who are involved in violence in the community, uh, that could go a, a long way. Uh, but it's also recognizing, again, that the justice system is not the only or most effective response to overall crime. Uh, improving the conditions in communities, the economic opportunity, the access to uh, social services to address the the harms that people have experienced and the trauma people have experienced is uh, a way to ensure that there's long-term uh, success and improvement. Professor, just one more question. The Supreme Court, the Supreme Court of Illinois just upheld the end of cash bail. Uh, what effect do you think that'll have on this issue? Um, I think it'll be talked about. Uh, it'll be talked about a lot. I think a lot of people, when the law was passed, uh, claimed that that was the reason for the increase in gun violence, even though the law hadn't gone into effect. Um, the only thing we can guarantee is going to happen as a result of this is defendants will no longer have to post money to be released. Uh, whether it results in more people being held in pretrial detention uh, or fewer is a question that that at this point can't be predicted. Uh, but I think the people who designed the law, their hope is that those individuals that are violent and that pose a danger to the community uh, can now be held in pretrial detention and can't be released just because they uh, or their friends or family have access to money. So um, not going to make a prediction about it. Lots of people will. But uh, our center is actually doing a long term evaluation to look at the implementation and impact of the Pretrial Fairness Act to answer exactly that question that you posed. And that was David Olson, Professor of Criminal Justice and Criminology and Co-Director of the Center for Criminal Justice at Loyola University, Chicago. Professor, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. 
To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Welcome, everyone, to our favorite segment of the recording, our legal grab bag segment. This is where, Tina, we pick seven of the hottest stories with some kind of legal angle. We discuss them, debate them, argue over them, throw each other, throw things at each other over them. And we're very privileged to have not just two longtime friends of the show and uh, excellent service providers, but our main sponsor for many years from McCorkle Litigation Services, Chuck McCorkle and Tony Kroos. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having us. Good. Remind our listeners what you guys do before we get into the grab bag and uh, why both Tina and I have used your company for so long. We provide excellent court reporting services as well as trial presentation services. Um, we've been in the industry since the 24, 1924, so almost coming up to 100 years. Uh, it was Chuck's grandfather that was the first McCorkle court reporters. Then his father went off on his own. And uh, now Chuck's a part of this, so we're really third generation uh, within the family. Um, we pride ourselves on quality uh, transcripts and excellent service. Wow. Well, technology has evolved somewhat since the early days, but uh, uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll affirm that the work that you all do for us for many years is excellent. Let's jump right into our topics, Tina. You know the drill. Guys, we're going to jump into some breaking stories. And the first one is our bi-weekly Trump watch. And for this, still working out the details here, but let me find this. I, I think I lost it here, but I had a great, where'd it go? Hang on, bear with me. I had a great graphic, Tina, for Trump watch. Let me see if I can pull it up again. Hang on. Here we go. Now, hopefully, with any luck, our staff will put together a audio part with the Tina soon. But here we go. You ready? Drum roll, please. Yep. It's time for Trump Watch. <laughs> Trump Watch, I said. All right. That's going to go over as well as I hope. But anyway, the latest news out of uh, the Trump legal world, Tina, is uh, as we talked about last time, Trump argued um, that his federal court case should be postponed until after the election. He didn't quite say Initially, in his pleadings that he wanted to wait until after the election, he said that the volume of materials and the complexity of the issues presented by special counsel Jack Smith are such that he would not be ready to go to trial uh, in the initial date, which was in December. Well, last week, the judge denied the request to indefinitely continue the date, but came up with kind of a hybrid in that she said that. It's true that the case doesn't lend itself to go to trial as quickly as December, but she didn't wait indefinitely. She set the trial date for May of 2024, which just happens to be right in the middle of the primary season for the presidential elections. Uh, so Trump will literally be in the midst of his reelection campaign, which we know we know he's the front runner by about 40 points. Um, but he will be defending not this, not just this litigation, but many others. I think three other cases will be at some stage of litigation uh, by May of 2024. So uh, not great news, I think, for the ex-president and his legal team. You have to remember that each, an important point, Tina, is that each of these prosecutors or offices who are leading these cases, they have pretty vast resources, pretty deep teams to pursue this litigation. Trump has a dwindling group of lawyers that 
one team has to now fight off all these different allegations. So not great either politically or legally, although politically, every time there's news involving his litigation, his numbers seem to increase, as does his funding, you know. Yeah, Rich. No, I mean, this is an interesting development. I think a lot of folks were thinking because this judge was appointed by Trump that she would not necessarily um, play ball on this one. And I mean, I think that, as you mentioned, it really is a hybrid approach. I think what remains to be seen is between now and then what other attorneys are going to be brought into the fold, whether any other sort of lawsuits emerge and how likely is it that this date is going to stick? Because as you mentioned, he's going to be knee deep in primary season. And even if the date sticks, it's going to be interesting to see how he messages what's going on around this. My sense is it's going to be consistent with what he's done in the past, um, you know, leveraging what's going on as much as he can to um, to essentially continue with the narrative that he's constructed around the Democrats and calling it a witch hunt and that sort of thing. Uh, Tony, Chuck, remember, we're talking now about the mishandled documents case of Mar-a-Lago only. But last week, Jack Smith uh, sent a letter to Trump uh, confirming what we've all suspected, that he is the uh, subject of a parallel investigation into uh, his uh, his actions during the January 6th insurrection on the Capitol. Uh, Most suspect that within the next week or 10 days, there will be charges. He will be indicted on that action as well. Uh, What do you think the chances are that Trump is in jail before he's in the Oval Office? Well, you hit on something really uh, key there is the more that he gets, um, you know, pursued in litigation, his numbers are going up. I find that really um, amazing and ridiculous in the same sentence. Uh, Chuck, what would you like to say? Well, I would just say that we've seen in the past um, <clears throat> presidents that have been accused of crimes are often just uh, not really, you know, pursued because they were a president. I mean, if you look at, uh, I mean, I don't want to, uh, you know, say too many uh, examples, but like Clinton, you know, he was uh, pursued. And in the end, I think what it looked like was he said, if I go down, you're going to go down. And so they stopped pursuing him. And because he was the president, they didn't, uh, you know, you know, Department of Justice is uh, always kind of like, you know, a little ambiguous. Uh, ambi- What's the word? (laughs) Ambiguous. Anyway, I don't think that they will pursue uh, charges to the full extent for Trump, even though everybody hates him, you know, and it seems like a likely target and everybody wants to find a crime, you know, but like these things just don't seem like, you know, I mean, you look at the past, like um, Chippaquiddick, you know, all these things that have happened and are Chappaquiddick, excuse me, but, um, they seem to have not like a free pass. They're not above the law. And so that's kind of like the reminder here for Trump is like, he's not above the law. So we're going to pursue this. And uh, it's for political reasons. I'm not a fan of Trump. I'm not a fan of Biden. Um, You know, clearly Biden should be like in some type of assisted living home. But, you know, at the same time, uh, I don't think he's going to make it because I, I don't think he's going to even run. Trump is a, a very masculine person. You know, like he he would want to like 
I think, cause a problem. You know, just saying, like, you're coming after me, well, I'm going to come after you. And uh, it's kind of, it is, it's like a machismo thing. So for that reason, and, and, and he is old, and we have so many better choices. So I, I think that they'll come out of the wood, wood, woodwork. Um, what's the guy in uh, Florida? DeSantis. DeSantis. I mean, I don't know, everything he says kind of makes sense. Um, you know, as far as, like, it, it goes for Trump, I, I just don't think he's going to make it. All right. From Trump to tacos, uh, Tina, natural segue there. We've covered this story before, and there's a development in the litigation involving the use of Taco Tuesday. Yes, Rich. So we reported on this earlier in the summer, and I'm thrilled to report that last week, our favorite phrase, Taco Tuesday, for Are some Are you thrilled tacos- to report it, really? <laughs> what? You're thrilled. I am thrilled to report that the phrase Taco Tuesday is one step closer to being set free. So we reported back in May here on Legal Faceoff that earlier in the summer, Taco Bell had sought to cancel Taco John's trademark registration for Taco Tuesday for what seems to be a pretty understandable reason that it's a common phrase that can't signify one particular company's tacos being sold on Tuesday. So Taco John's, the owner of that registration, told the trademark office last week that it was going to abandon its federal trademark registration for this phrase. What's interesting, Rich, is that Taco John's owned trademark registration rights for this name everywhere except for the state of New Jersey, where those rights are still owned by another party called Gregory's Restaurant and Bar. Uh, Taco Bell has actually um, a separate challenge lodged against that restaurant. And at least for now, Gregory said he's not going to give up his rights in Taco Tuesday that quickly. So when asked about the decision, the Taco John CEO said, that they've always prided themselves on being the home of Taco Tuesday, but it just didn't seem right to be paying millions of dollars to lawyers to defend their rights in the name. And that the phrase and protection of Taco Tuesday was never about stopping other people from advertising and selling tacos on Tuesday. Rich, I think it's a pretty slippery slope here, but in any event, Taco Tuesday is one step, is one step closer to being set free. Thank God. Thank God our long national nightmare is over involving Taco Tuesday. Um, you know, pretty good marketing ploy, though, either way. I mean, you know, got lots of people talking about the issue with uh, Taco Tuesday. And um, I don't know. Guys, what are your thoughts? I mean, you thank you know, you work in an industry and your whole survival depends on litigation, obviously. So nothing wrong with people fighting over uh, over something that seemingly is frivolous. But what are your what's your take? Is this? Much ado about nothing, or is this a actual uh, legitimate use of the legal system? I've used that term for years, as anybody around the country has. Taco Tuesday is very—it's um, just so open. I can't understand uh, the whole frivolous lawsuit, as you would say. Um, I—we personally do a lot more of the, the heavy met mal litigation, but uh, uh, the—I I think it's a frivolous lawsuit. All right. Well, speaking of frivolous lawsuits, I'm doing a Joe Brand segue here. Uh, we've got a hundred million dollar class action, Tina, by a passenger in Florida, a woman 
who has alleged that Frontier Airlines is engaged in deceptive practices. She has filed a class action, as I mentioned, alleging that uh, the low-cost carrier is deceiving customers by calling themselves a low-cost airline, when in fact, when you drill down, uh, according to the allegation, uh, you will find that they are charging for everything that is engaged in the travel process. So you buy a ticket, nothing's included, right? You got to pay for bags, you got to pay for snacks, you got to pay for changing fees, you got to pay for different size of of, uh, of luggage. She alleges in her lawsuit that while the airline claims to offer one free personal item, that they use a much smaller measuring instrument um, than the actual uh, advertisement for what's free. I guess, you know, I travel a lot, Tina. Uh, you do as well. Um, she says that consumers are often unaware of these fees and uh, large and plentiful fees until after they purchase a ticket. My answer to her is, um, have you ever been on a Frontier plane? I mean, what do you think you're getting, right? I mean, there's also a legal phrase that is caveat emptor. Let the buyer beware. I mean, there's no way in the world that anyone who flies Frontier doesn't know that you're getting basically the bargain basement ticket and the bargain basement airline. That's that's their business model, right? No frills and you pay as you go. For some people, that means just a ticket and that's fine. Bring your own food, bring your own water, sit you know, in the worst seat on the plane. For those people that want uh, an upgrade to the travel experience, they pay for it. So it's hard to believe that any jury, if it makes it this far, would buy her allegation that she was deceived into thinking that her travel experience at Frontier or any other airline would be better than what it, everyone knows it is. And this is not just a practice, by the way, Tina, that is followed by Frontier. Every airline's got tier systems, right? I mean, there's no airline except for Southwest. They don't pay for bags. They don't charge for bags. They charge for other things. Every single airline follows this model. Why? Because it works. It's, rec- it's generated record profits for the airline. So I think this is a stupid lawsuit and she, sh- she should go away. Yeah, I mean, based on what I know, Rich, I agree with you. I mean, at the end of the day, you can get as much transparency as you want during the ticket buying process. And um, I agree with you that all these other things that may be standard when you buy a ticket on a particular airline that's, you know, like United or American or whatnot, um, with these other airlines, every additional thing that you may take for granted traveling on other airlines is an add-on. And so the notion that um, they're somehow not really you know, that they're hiding those things or, or saying that the price is one thing, but then charging more for these other things. I, I, I think, as you said, caveat emptor. And by the way, most of the time there, there is a lot of transparency around these things. And it's just a matter of whether you're paying attention to it or not. Yeah. Guys, McCorkle, fellas, what do you think? I mean, is there any, any merit to this? I mean, you know, listen, there is an argument <clears throat> in many situations that consumers are baited and switches. They are advertised one thing. And then when they actually get the product, it's a whole other thing. So, you know, there's some merit to that kind of lawsuit. Does this qualify in your opinion? No, I don't, I don't think it does. And like you said, there are several other uh, options out there that are also bargain basement, so to speak. I recently showed up the day before my plane with my family for Memorial Day weekend, and it was through Travelocity and they didn't, the the email didn't get to my wife's uh, inbox. So we were all there at the O'Hare Airport on the wrong day. <laughs> they they switched the day of the, the flight. So it happens to a lot of people. And we won't fly them again. 
Yeah, Chuck, we've, just, seen, we've seen reports of, you know, uh, uh, a lot of uh, tumult of the airport, especially in the last few weeks, right, with the height of the travel season. Uh, lots of calls for reform, lots of calls for more regulation by the government uh, on, on airlines in particular. Perhaps litigation is a way to improve uh, the travel experience and make airlines a little more accountable to, con- to consumers. I would have to agree. It should be some form of accountability. All right, moving on to our next story. Uh, in the world of fashion, Tina, more litigation. What's this? What are we talking about here? So, Rich, we're talking about two super competitive influencer brands in the fast fashion industry, Sheen and Timu, who are duking it out in court with multiple lawsuits that they filed against each other and that have been filed against them by others. So Sheen brought an impersonation scheme lawsuit. We don't see those very often, Rich, against Timu in March, actually here in Illinois federal court, alleging that Timu had willfully and flagrantly infringed its IP rights and had been involved in false and deceptive business practices by impersonating them on social media, by trying to trade off their well-known trademarks and using some images um, that they've used in advertising as part of their own product listings. And they've also been alleged to have been paying influencers to disseminate false and deceptive statements about Sheen products. In the meantime, Timu is now suing Sheen in Massachusetts federal court with allegations of antitrust violations claiming that Sheen forces manufacturers to sign loyalty oaths saying that they won't do business with Timu and that that has in turn hurt its growth potential in the U.S. This fast fashion industry, Rich, um, is a lot of money. I mean, it's about a $106 billion industry with Sheen being valued at about $66 billion and Timu also having had significant growth, particularly over the past year after airing a commercial during the 2023 Super Bowl. These two companies are in the landscape of a number of these fast fashion companies, Rich, that are triggering increasing concerns about the way in which they do business, including potential violations of forced labor and issues with shipping channels allowing goods into the U.S. in the first instance. There have been violations alleged of the RICO Act, as well as environmental questions being raised about what these cheap clothes are doing to the environment. Because, Rich, a lot of people end up throwing these clothes out after they wear them because they're so cheap. They're like $5, $10 a piece. So, um, an interesting industry, a lot of money, but a lot of concerns being flagged by folks. Yeah. And again, you can't talk about this issue without uh, discussing the implications of, you know, a China-based company, uh, given what is the current geopolitical climate involving China, competition with China. China's growing every day, right? We know that. And uh, it's really on the back of a lot of this kind of industry, uh, very cheaply made, questionable labor tactics, questionable adherence to what we on this side of the world uh, take for granted in terms of labor laws. Um, so uh, it, it's it's wrapped up in that. Uh, Chuck, Tony, what are your thoughts on, on this, um, this, this litigation in particular? Uh, I would have to say <clears throat> that they do have a case you know, I mean, I, I used to actually work in fashion. 
and um, you know it does get very uh, blurry as far as like what people do and <clears throat> the thing I learned in fashion school was that everything's been done it's been done over and over and you know uh, there's a cycle of about 30 years for fashion um, especially women's clothing but you know at the same time you can't take somebody's name and try to use it for your own benefit so I think there's a case but I'm not an attorney so don't take my word for it there you go moving on to uh, another lawsuit Tina in, in the news um, involving McDonald's we uh, one of the most famous cases of all time the one that's been uh, the subject of a documentary lots of stories lots of misunderstanding actually is the hot coffee litigation involving McDonald's many years ago uh, in which a drive-through uh, customer got burned by some McDonald's hot coffee and sued the company, resulting in a very high verdict award that was later uh, reduced. But again, uh, sort of is the uh, poster child for frivolous litigation. Well, um, uh, recently in uh, in uh, Florida, again, this always happens in Florida, Tina. We know every wa- wacky lawsuit is uh, is generally a Florida based, but. Uh, a jury in Broward County found that a McDonald's uh, in Florida was responsible for burning a customer. A four-year-old um, allegedly uh, was burned by a, of all things, not hot coffee, but a chicken McNugget. Um, and the plaintiff asked for $1.5 million. Um, and the jury curiously found that McDonald's was not negligent for causing the burns. Yet they still awarded eight hundred thousand uh, dollars for being burned by a McNugget. Now, I love McNuggets myself. I love McDonald's. Uh, I've never, you know, been burned by one. I'm sure it was painful if it really happened that way. But come on, isn't the answer? And as a defense attorney, that's always going to be my answer, Tina. That the jury must have asked themselves after about thirty seconds in the jury room is similar to our earlier case. Did you not know that McNuggets are hot? Right? I mean. How about blowing on it like we all do when we look at hot food? Now, I know this is a four-year-old, but where were the parents? Why are the parents giving a four-year-old hot food? Do you expect a McNugget to be cold? I mean, is that what you want? We we would see a class action if it was cold, right, for emotional trauma for eating cold McNuggets. So what do you expect McDonald's to do? They are serving hot food. They gave this person hot food, and it was hot. So another stupid lawsuit, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I I think you've raised really good points, Rich. Um, I would say, and you've got McNugget lovers across the spectrum. You've got them everywhere from young, young kids to adults like yourself. And, you know, if you don't serve it hot enough, then there are issues with respect to potentially salmonella and other types of foodborne diseases that people may allege because the food was not cooked properly or sitting around for a while. I agree with you. I think when your kids are of a certain age, and I don't have any myself, but I've got plenty of nieces and nephews, you want to make sure before the child is embarking on the eating um, experience that their food is not too hot, right? And I also, my understanding, if, if it's correct, was that there was discussion about there wasn't a sufficient warning printed on the package. Well, let's think about this for a moment. Can these kids even read? I mean, can they read? I mean, let's just use some common sense here, Rich. I mean, I don't think that would have prevented anything here. 
Yeah, I mean, it's fast food. It's all hot. Let's stipulate from now until the end of time for any future potential litigants that are stupid enough to file a lawsuit like this. It's fast food. It's hot. Number one. Number two, the kid alleged or the family alleged that the kid's leg was burned. I mean, this is 2019. How long, how, how much damage can you suffer from a McNugget burn to the leg? Was it like a hot coal that had scalded the leg? How hot could it have been that four years later, they're still alleging damages to the tune of $800,000? Third issue is the allegation is that, Tony, the McNugget was stuck in the car seat. So, I mean, obviously it fell, right? I mean, that's another problem. How about stopping? How about not eating in the car, perhaps? And if you're worried about this, then stop, sit down, and don't have your kid juggling, you know, hot McNuggets while you're in the car. I think the bottom line here is poor parenting. And uh, we see that more and more frequently nowadays with these litigation, uh, frivolous litigation. I mean, and people are always blaming and pointing fingers at other people. It's, it, what about parenting? It all starts with the parenting. So get, get your ass together and take care of your kid. Chuck, any, any, uh, any, any part of you agree with this jury in Broward? No. Um, and I'll just add that, you know, the reason people do this, it's not the first time. We've seen it over and over. The reason our payouts, like $800,000, you know, so it's like, you know, you, the attorney makes money, you make money, uh, you know, you look like a, a a bad person, but it's like, why not do it? You're going to buy a boat. <laughs> no. In related news, Tina, uh, breaking news, I'm just reading over the wire, the cost of a six-piece six McNugget just went up from two ninety nine to $742 because of this lawsuit. <laughs> Very funny. <laughs> It's funny. I spent yesterday on a farm all day long, and uh, I don't do this very often, but I was coming home and I wanted comfort food. So I went to Burger King, uh, you know, not uh, any type of war between McDonald's and Burger King. But anyway, I wanted chicken nuggets, and I really wanted them. I just really wanted barbecue sauce. <laughs> so they're like, they don't exist anymore. Now it's like buffalo nuggets or whatever. And I, I had them in the car. And they were really hot. And I had to actually let them sit there for a good 10, 15 minutes before I could eat them. Um, so that, that's nothing against Burger King, because I think that they are constantly trying to figure out ways to keep food hot. You know, just like a pizza comes in a, a warming container because it takes time to get it to your house. So, like, uh, I think some of these fast food places have kind of, like, figured out the science to keep things hot. I'm not sure, but it was hot for like a good time. Here so, I thought um, here I thought you were going to say that at the farm, you finally discovered what part of the chicken the McNugget is. <laughs> Still trying to figure that one out. Tina, uh, some interesting wedding vows by a uh, rather boastful uh, bride. Yeah, Rich. So this has been on above the law and in other sort of uh, law school and law blogs. In the last couple of weeks, there's a bride-to-be who graduated from a top 14 law school who reached out to the Reddit law school community trying to get some advice from them about what is appropriate to have in her wedding vows. Apparently, she's pretty proud of having graduated from a top 14 law program, and she had talked to her fiancé about 
trying to incorporate those that fact into her wedding vows. Now, she claimed that she wanted to thank him for being so supportive of her, which enabled her to graduate from a top 14 law school. Um, but apparently, as uh, above the law, I'd like to say, it didn't make the red line with her fiance. So she took to the Reddit law school community to see what they thought. She didn't really get much support there there either, Rich. Um, and apparently she's leaving people thinking that there's a little bit something wrong with her. And um, it's actually pretty funny after a number of posts and um, a series of posts that she did, some of which have been removed. Um, the last post um, was with respect to somebody who reported her actually thinking that she may actually need um, some assistance because they were wondering if they if she had a mental health issue with all the posts about incorporating her top 14 law school status into her wedding vows. And the last edit she posted was to whoever reported me acting concerned about my mental health all because I want to be the center of attention on my wedding day. You can go to hell. Rich, you know, I got married um, a number of years after I graduated law school, but never in a million years would I have ever thought to either incorporate where I went to law school or where I was practicing law as something appropriate to include in my wedding vows. Well, it's like, you know, you ever meet someone who goes to who's gone to Harvard or one of the top every other word is Harvard. Right. I mean, that's been my experience. So we get it. You went to a great law school. You know, let's let's put that in the invite. Why stop with the vows? Right. Why not have it on the cake? Uh, you know, Jane and Jack forever. By the way, I was in the top 20% of my class in Georgetown. Let's uh, let's honeymoon on campus. Um, let's just, you know, invite all our professors to be the groomsmen and stuff. Like, shut up. We get it. You went to a great school. Who cares? Guys? Amen. <laughs> Enough said. Let's move on to our four, our last story. I also was going to have a graphic for this, but I didn't have a chance. But uh, the hottest movie in the world right now, and uh, actually the biggest opening weekend of all time for a film directed by a female, is none other than Barbie. I know, uh, Chuck and Tony, you were very excited. You were probably dressed up. We want to see some pictures of you attending the, uh, the, 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 the movie over the weekend, dressed in your best Barbie outfit. But... It's interesting, Tina, that uh, Mattel, who is notoriously very protective of their IP and has sued for years over any alleged uh, violations of their IP, including to Barbie, they've allowed a song uh, to be used in the latest in, in this Barbie movie. So uh, the soundtrack is fe features lots of songs, including Dua Lipa's newest hit, Dance the Night, which now I hear like in my brain constantly. Um, but this film samples Barbie Girl, which is the, again, like, you know, once that's in your head, you can never get rid of it. The Come On Barbie, Let's Go Party song from 1997. It was by a group called Aqua, kind of a one-hit wonder from Scandinavia. But Barbie uh, engaged in years of litigation against that song because, of course, Aqua did not get the license to use any of the terms or likenesses or images from Barbie in their song. So this was a long litigation, ultimately dismissed by a federal court judge in a very notorious uh, ruling in which he basically told the parties to just chill out. But uh, Mattel has barely changed her tune, Tina, because now they're not putting up a fight um, to the use of at least a sample 
of this song that they so long fought against using. It's now in the latest film. So you, this is your wheelhouse. Has Mattel somehow softened their uh, their stance on this, or more likely, do they see a value, a benefit to their brand in using it in this mega popular film? You know, it's a great question, Rich, and we could spend hours talking about it. I mean, I think high level, given the way that the case turned out involving this, the song Barbie Girl from the 90s that Mattel saw, if anything, this is a wonderful opportunity. And it's also been 25 years, right? So times have changed. Um, the public perception of Barbie has changed. I think after that case was fought 20 plus years ago, I think that there were that there were sales slumps, et cetera, et cetera, where the Barbie franchise took an economic decline for many years. And I think there's a realization that this is terrific advertising. The movie, the the songs, the sampling in Barbie world of the Barbie girl song. I think there's all these different threads to this where Mattel realizes, given where we are today in 2023, um, and given the popularity of this movie and the popularity of the artists that have recorded on this soundtrack, um, and I believe that the appropriate um, licensing was was obtained to sample Barbie Girl in Barbie World. I'm pretty sure I read that too. So, there's an attempt also to try to get licenses, et cetera, where needed. So I, I think Mattel is seeing this as a, a great development, and I think they're trying to roll roll with it. Yeah, guys, Chuck, Tony, it seems like the approach, at least in this case, it's not in every case because we see lots of litigation. We cover lots of stories involving you know, parties, particularly in the music industry, fighting over uh, the use of of their IP. But in this case, it seems like the parties made a conscious decision that there's enough money to be made for everyone as long as we work together. I would say it's a combination of a turnover and management and uh, and maybe somebody realizes the, the value, as you mentioned, behind um, all the marketing that goes out there, just making Barbie more popular. All right. We like yeah, uh, Go ahead. Last word. I'll just ask. So I think Tina can probably speak to this. Um, there is a difference between IP and copyright. And, you know, uh, one of the things I learned, especially in fashion, was that you can borrow basically one quarter of uh, somebody else's product and it's legal. So like if you make a song, you know, and then, I mean, time goes by. So it's like you don't make money off it forever. You know, eventually it becomes the right of the public, I think. I'm not sure. Tina. It's a that's thanks for raising that. It's a little more complicated than that, especially when it comes to copyright, just because um, fair use and what's considered fair use is determined by a number of factors that are very fact specific for a particular case. And one of the things that's pretty pivotal is the extent of the taking and the nature of what you've taken. Um, there does come a point where stuff comes off of copyright and it goes into the public domain. So that's like a whole other layer to the analysis as well. All right, guys, we'd like to go around the horn and end off every legal grab bag with getting to know each other a little bit. So we're going to go around the topic today. Speaking of Barbie, that was, uh, I think, invented in 1959. Name your favorite all-time toy. Could be as, you know, growing up or it could be now, but you know, Barbie is, of course, enjoying a renaissance now, record sales of the actual toy. Uh, besides Barbie, what's your favorite toy of all time? We'll start off with uh, with Chuck on that one. 
Voltron. Which one? <laughs> Voltron. That was before Transformers were uh, famous. Yeah. <laughs> when but... I was a kid, it was a little Voltron toy. That's a good one. That's a good one. Tony, did you play with Barbies growing up? <laughs> no, uh, I would have to say my favorite toy was the uh, bright lights or night lights. Can't remember exactly if it was night lights or bright but you, it had a black uh, piece of paper and you put little uh, colored pegs in it and you'd make little I'm displays. Friendly. Light bright? Was what was that, a light bright? Light making things with love. <laughs> night bright hey. things with night bright. Was it night bright uh, or light bright? bright? I thought it was light bright. Night bright. bright. Night bright. Right. Light bright. Yep. Light bright, maybe. Yeah, that was a good one. Although, you know, these days that would be a choking hazard. All those little pegs would be a recall, probably. <laughs> yeah. uh, Tina, I two for a million dollars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 800 grand. Tina, favorite toy growing up? I loved my Paddington bear. Paddington bear. You still have it? I still have it. And I actually have a couple others. I can't say I'm quite a collector of um, Paddington bears, but you should probably ask Sussler about that because he has to live with my stuffed animals. But I have I have like four Paddington bears. Wow. It's amazing. Well, my, I, you know, I was going to say plastic Sam. I love plastic Sam, you know, the bendable action figure, but now I remember my favorite was, uh, you guys will remember this. The GI Joe action figure was amazing. GI Joe was incredible, but better than that, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a third answer. My all time favorite was my Steve Austin action figure. Steve Austin was the character that Lee majors played. In this, in the uh, six million dollar man, and the, do you guys remember the best part of that action figure? Nope. So, in the if you looked in the back of the action figure's head, it was like a, uh, a binocular. One eye was a binocular, so you would look oh wow, and look through his eye and his because he because the character had like you know but uh, a long term uh, like bionic eyes a or bionic whatever. eye, and that was the greatest part. It was the coolest toy. Um, wish I still had it somewhere. Lisa, Leslie, you're a little. Playing with toys a little more recently than ours, our trusty behind-the-scenes staff. What's your favorite toy growing up? I like the Beanie Babies. I was a Beanie Baby fan, so love those. Still have a whole bins of them. Invented by Chicago's very own uh, Ty. Oh yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Leslie. I uh, I was born in two thousand, so you know I grew up with a bunch of video games. But ah. I will say that when I was younger, I had this like plastic little horse that I would carry around everywhere. Like even after one of the legs broke off, I just would not let go of it. So it wasn't even like, I don't even know where it came from. I just had this little horse that I loved. So was it my little pony? No, it was just a random like horse. It reminded me from the movie spirit. I don't know if you know of it. Mm-hmm. It's about a horse. And so, so yeah, I, I was a, I was a bit of a horse girl. Wow. It all comes full circle because the movie spirit, the uh, song in that movie was written by my fellow Canadian, Brian Adams. Oh yeah. Seeing tomorrow night in concert. So it all comes back full circle. I'll, uh, I'll give Brian your best from the movie spirits. And uh, speaking of my little pony, I think there might be a Brony convention coming up. Chuck and Tony, we'll see you at the, uh, do you know what Bronies are? No, I do not. Yeah. I don't believe that for a second. Uh, Bronies are grown people who dress as my little pony characters. So uh, we'll all go. Maybe we'll do a, a legal face-off road trip to the next Brony convention. Uh, for Tina Martini, for Leslie and Lisa behind the scenes, for our trusty moderator, Joe Brand, who we hope comes back at some point, if, if ever. 
Uh, we want to thank uh, from McCorkle Litigation, Tony and Chuck, uh, who are, again, the sponsors of Legal Face Up. We're very grateful for your many years of sponsorship. You guys are great partners. We really appreciate all you do. I am Rich Lankov. We will see you next time on Legal Face Off on WGN. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.